I could get used to sitting with my wife through the early part of church. I could get real used to that. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you would take yours and turn to the book of Malachi, that's where we are going to start our journey today. We are on the last book of the Old Testament. Next thing to happen in Scripture is for the King of Kings to come on the scene. And hopefully after this book, you will be primed and ready for him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your many blessings. Father, we thank you for the song that was just sang to you. Father, we look forward to you, Emmanuel. Father, God with us. God, I pray that we would uh, always long for that day where we will dwell with you in peace forever. And Father, I pray that uh, as we dive into your word, into this last of the uh, Old Testament prophets, I pray that you would uh, give us even more of a yearning uh, for that Son of God to dwell amongst us. And Father, I pray that whatever he says, that we would be open to. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Malachi. We're in chapter 1. And there is so much that has taken place that it would be impossible to review all of it. But just to give you a little bit of review, by the time we got to the prophets, the prophets were telling God's people, you need to repent and you need to get back into a good old covenant relationship with God. And you know the story. They don't repent. They don't repent. They don't repent. And so God begins to uh, bring the curses from the Old Testament or from the Old Covenant onto the people. And so there were blessings if they obeyed and there were curses if they disobeyed. Well, curse after curse after curse came their way. And ultimately, the nation of Israel uh, found itself in captivity. And the nation of Judah did not respond to the same warnings from the Lord. And the nation of Judah found itself in captivity as well. Well, now that they're all in captivity, uh, God has begun to deliver them from captivity and he's put them back in the land and he's caused his spirit to dwell among them and he's given them a heart to obey the Lord more than they had before. And so there's been several of our, what we're calling post-exile prophets. Uh, these are the, these are the three last prophets and they've been uh, urging God's people, finish rebuilding the temple, work at it hard, do well. Also, you need to remember to repent. Don't stray away from the Lord. And last week we talked about that the prophet said the branch, the branch from the book of Isaiah is coming to you. And we looked back at Isaiah to what all of these promises meant. And so this week we are uh, approximately 70, 80 years on the other side of the temple being rebuilt. Remember, Ezra rebuilds the temple. And they kind of take a break after building the foundation and they don't finish it. So Ezra and uh, Haggai, they come on the scene and they say, guys, don't take a break, but finish rebuilding God's house. Well, now we're 90 years into God's house being rebuilt and the prophet Malachi comes on the scene. Now, Malachi chapter one, we're going to start down in verse six. But if you want to do something interesting this year, take and read the book of Malachi out loud. Malachi is a lot like the book of Joel in which it's a it's a relatively short book and it's an easy book of the prophets to understand. And so if you were just to take a surface reading through Malachi after all of the sermons that you've sat through on the old covenant, Malachi makes perfect sense. And we're actually going to read a, a, the bulk of it today, but that's just be something fun for you to do with your kids. Now, Malachi chapter one, verse six says this, a son honors his father. And a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? 
If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, so here's what's going on. God says, the priests are despising my name, and the people are not giving me the honor that a father or a mother deserves. And so they say, the people say, and the people kind of have this whiny tone. You ever... You ever fussed at a child that maybe belonged to you? And they don't go, why is that, mother? Why are you asking me to clean my room? They don't do that. They go, why? That sort of thing. You ever, you ever experienced that? So, so most of your kids never did that. Okay, good. Um, they're going to do this over and over and over again, God's people. And so they, God says, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, you, you are presenting, this is God speaking to the people, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar, but you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised, but when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? And so God says, listen, what you're doing is when you come to me to offer sacrifices, you're bringing blind and lame sheep to give me. He says, how about give that to your governor? Give that same sheep to your king that's in charge of you. And no earthly king, no earthly ruler is going to be satisfied with that. You try that. You are dishonoring me by giving me something that you wouldn't give to anybody else. And remember, they're supposed to take the firstborn. They're supposed to take unblemished lambs and offer them as sacrifices. And now they're not doing that. Now they're looking out over their fields and they're taking the blind and the lame. And instead of selling them cheap at auction, like somebody would do now, they're taking them and they're giving them to the Lord instead. And so the Lord is almost being used like a thrift shop where people take old and abandoned things that they don't want anymore. And God says, no, that's evil. Verse 9, but now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? All that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you might not, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name. A grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you should bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And so what has happened here is that uh, several hundred years earlier, Solomon's temple was destroyed. And now Ezra has rebuilt this other temple. And this temple is nowhere near the glory and splendor of the old temple. And so people are worshiping the Lord 
in contemptible ways because the atmosphere is not as grandiose as it was before. And so now they're giving all sorts of things to the Lord that they never would have dreamed about giving to any earthly person. And God comes on the scene and he says, no, this isn't going to fly. I am a great king and my name is going to be revered among the nations and this stuff that you're doing is not going to fly at all and so one of the problems that god had with the people is that the people were saying my this is verse 13 how tiresome it is and so just briefly malachi is the last book of the old testament before the king comes on the scene and so I've always battled with this around Christmas time. Um, when I was a youth pastor and now as a pastor, I think, man, what can we as a people give to God at Christmas time? And so you think money, you think time, and you think all of these things. And the reality is, is that anything that you could ever come up with to give the Lord for Christmas, he's given you. There's nothing that we have to offer the king of the world that he doesn't already have. And there's nothing that we could ever give to him that he hasn't first given to us. And so what's going on here is that we need to do what the Lord says. And we need to be found pleasing to the Lord when he comes back. And truth be told, you're going to see throughout the book of Malachi that this is exactly what the Lord wants from us. He's not asking for all sorts of extreme things on the heels of the Savior of the world coming. He's merely asking you to take what he's already told us and do it joyfully. That's all he's looking for. And so, but the people are saying, oh, this is so difficult to do. This is so tiresome. Have you ever been there in church? Have you ever been asked to do something? And the whole time thinking, oh, how difficult this is, how tiresome this is. If that's your heart's feeling, this says, don't do it at all. He would rather have nobody do anything than people do things unwillingly or half-heartedly. He says, going through this, he says, oh, that there would be someone among you who would shut the gates that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you. And so God says he would rather have the doors of his house closed and no one come in than people half-heartedly worship him and people worship him with the wrong heart. You ever heard that song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship? Anybody ever heard that? It's a praise song. Do you know why that praise song was written? It's because a music minister realized that his church was just going through the motions and singing. And they cut off all music from the church for a matter of months until the church was able to get their heart right. And during that time, he writes that song, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. You should go back sometime and look at the lyrics to that. But sometimes the greatest thing that a pastor or a worship leader could do would be shut down all worship if it's not being done meaningfully. And so that means that, and I'm not, I'm not accusing this, I'm saying that maybe, let's just say that you had a choir that wasn't joyfully singing to the Lord. That would mean that the greatest thing that a worship leader could do would be to call off a Christmas program, even if the whole town was coming, if it wasn't being done out of a heart of worship. You ever think about that? And that's what God longs for is that people genuinely look at what they're doing in worship and what they're saying in worship and they do it wholeheartedly instead of haphazardly. 
Now, the show's going to go on tonight, right? Just making sure. Just making sure. Okay. <laughs> but I'm just giving that as an example that sometimes the greatest thing you can do is stop all worship of God until you get right here. Here we go. On to chapter 2. And this is tough. This one is to the priest. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. Chapter 2, verse 2. If you do not listen, and if you do not take it to heart to honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already, because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. Listen to this. Merry Christmas. And I will spread refuse on your faces. The refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. You think, what in the world? The Savior of the world is on his way to earth, and God is talking about spreading excrement in someone's face? What? This is to trigger something in your memory that we didn't cover. In the book of Nahum, the book of Nahum is written to the Assyrians. If you remember, the Assyrians were a group of people who were... uh, who were, were not good to God's people. And they actually come in and they conquer God's people. And they're the same ones that put hooks in the people's nose and drag them off into captivity. God comes on the scene and he tells the Assyrians, he says, you think you're getting away with what you're doing, but you're not. Remember, God told Abraham, those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I'll curse. Well, the Assyrians were cursing God's people. And so God comes on the scene and he says, listen, this is what's in store for you Assyrians. I'm going to lift your skirts over your face and I'm going to spread refuse in your face. And so God is triggering that in your mind. And he tells the priest, because they're not taking the worship of God seriously, that the same fate that the Assyrians suffered is the exact same fate that the priests are going to suffer. And that's the point of this whole thing. Then go down, and this is what they've done. This is the accusation. Chapter 2, verse 8. But as for you, priest, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so the priest, instead of trying to help out and make things better and instructing people in the way of the Lord, they're actually causing people to stumble in the, the fate for them is not good. They're going to see the same fate as the Assyrians. And you think, hmm, that's a little stern for the people or for the priest. But listen, God says in when, when God becomes flesh and dwells among us, he says, take heed any of you when you're teaching these younger ones. It would be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown off a cliff than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so this is a big warning. Sunday school teachers, deacons, pastors, anybody... If you are causing people to stumble over this, if you're being a stumbling block instead of building people up, the punishment for you is overwhelming and not good at all. And so God comes on the scene again, and we're in chapter 2, verse 11 now. And he has three things that he has against the people, as if he didn't have enough. And the three problems are this. Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. And so what's going on is the people have spiritually mixed marriages. That means that the people who are supposed to stay pure and undefiled to the Lord are abandoning God's house, which... which God loves, and they're chasing after other things into lust and idolatry and things like that. So they're, they're not marrying the right sorts of people. 
Then when they do get married, it says this in verse 13. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it from, with favor from your hand. And so the people are crying out to the Lord. I don't know why this is happening to me. God isn't accepting any of my gifts. You ever, you ever met people like that, that, that acts like they don't know why these bad things are happening? You never, you never run those. Okay, good. You, you know those people too. I don't know why this is going on. Yet you say, verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And so what's going on is that some of the people are marrying the wrong people. They're marrying people outside of the covenant that God has made with his people. And then the other problem is that people's offerings are not being accepted. Why? Because the men are treating their wives with contempt and they're treating their wives treacherously. And so they're either married to the wrong people or they're treating their spouses poorly. And so then God says this in chapter two, verse 16, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And so God has marriage in the forefront of his mind here, where he says you make sure that you marry the right people and you make sure that when you're married to them that you don't treat them treacherously. Then in verse 17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Hear that, hear that whining tone from the people? Everyone who does evil is good. Excuse me. How have we wearied him, you say? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? So there's two different things that the people are doing here. They're saying that the people who do evil are good. Now, this is a big one for God's people today. There are people that you are surrounded by that have great reputations in the community. They have great reputations in the church, but they do things that are evil outside of us. And then when they do decide to do something nice, everybody goes, wow, look how great they are. Isn't that person just a a God-fearing person? It's so great what they're doing. They're such a good person. And you think, no, time out. You don't get to do one good thing and you're a godly person that demands all sorts of respect. It is a lifestyle that God demands of being good and doing good. And so the people are continually doing evil, but they're calling evil good. And so there's this group of people who have this stellar reputation and it wasn't warranted for them at all. And so they're being praised for something that they're not. And so God's people are giving a free pass to other people who call themselves God's people, and it's no good. And so, and the people are also saying, where is the God of justice? And so isn't that a good question? If you look around and you see all of these bad things going on, you could watch the news today and you could come up with this question. Where is God in all of these things? The next verse, behold, verse chapter three, verse one, behold, I'm gonna send my messenger and he will clear the way before me 
And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so the question is, where is, where is the God of justice? And God answers him in the next verse. And he says, he's on his way. He is coming. And he is going to come to his temple. And he is the messenger of the covenant. If you've been here, and I've been talking about the old covenant, and I've slowly been explaining the new covenant, you should be a little bit confused as to what the new covenant is exactly. Because it hasn't been made perfectly clear yet. We've been alluding to what the new covenant is, but the, was it, let me make sure I call him the right thing, the messenger of the covenant is on his way. And so when God comes, he is the messenger of the new covenant, and he is going to roll this thing out beautifully, what it means to be a part of the new covenant. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And so those are two things that purify. He will sit, verse 3, as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And so you get a glimpse here that the, the, make sure I get it right again, the messenger of the covenant is coming. And somehow he's going to fundamentally do something to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah so that their offerings can be accepted. Now, spoiler alert, Christ is coming for what reason? To take away the sins of the people. And it's only when the sins of the people are taken away are they going to be able to genuinely give offerings to God that are acceptable. And so all of this is on its way. Now we go on. It gets, it gets heavy, deep, and real, real quick. Chapter 3, verse 7. And listen to what he says. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. That's a good pep talk, right? You guys have always done what I told you not to do. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, as if it hasn't been clear so far. As if the list wasn't already long enough that they needed to clean up. They say, well, how do we do that? Will a man, verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine... In the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And so the people say, what's the problem? God says, you're robbing me. They say, how are you robbing me? And he says, you're not bringing me tithes or offerings. Shucks, I was hoping you wouldn't notice. And so hopefully you remember now that the tithe in the old covenant was different than the tithe that we have now. The tithe in the Old Covenant, he wanted the first fruits of everything, the first fruits of your animals, first fruits of your produce. The tithe in the Old Covenant ended up being somewhere around 30% of all you had, you're giving to God. It's pretty cumbersome, isn't it? 
Okay, okay, just making sure. I'm thinking, hey, if they say, where's Jack? If, where's the deacons? If they said, no, that's not too bad. Hey, we could up it to 30 instead of 10, right? Anyways, here we go. See, sometimes it pays not to be quiet. So the people say, how have we robbed you? And God says, you haven't given me tithes and offerings. And so God says that when you don't give me those things, it's actually you taking them away because it is already mine. You're just merely releasing it. Listen, a tithe for you and I, we're going to go with right at 10%. The tithe was given before the old covenant. Abraham, go back Genesis chapter 12. Abraham gives 10% of everything he has to God. Jacob looks around and he says, God, if you are who I think you are, and if you meet me in this place, 10% of everything I have belongs to you. And so the tithe for the people of God was instituted well before this old covenant. And so maybe you're here. And you don't tithe. One of the things that you could begin to do for Christmas, one of the things that you could give to God for Christmas, how about start by tithing? And you say, oh, bad timing. Who asked people to tithe on December the 14th, right before Christmas? If you won't do it now, you won't do it later. Somebody who discipled me in the faith looked me in the eye, and I was talking about how things were going to get easier at a certain point. I thought, after I finish up with these college years, life is going to get easier. And he looked me dead in the eye, and he says, it's as easy now as it's ever going to get, and you won't be later what you won't be now. And I said, thanks. Appreciate that. And so I manned up and stepped up to the plate and started doing what I thought I needed to do. And so when it comes to tithing this Christmas season, don't expect to read the Christmas story and for God to pour out his blessings on you when you're keeping a tithe from him. Don't expect that to happen. This sermon isn't about tithing. It just, it's there. So we got, we can't just pass over it. Now, what does he say? Chapter three, verse 13. He says, your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Listen, God says, your words, your idle words in saying it's a vain thing to follow the Lord are an abomination to God. Listen, It is not a vain thing to follow the Lord. There are a lot of seemingly tedious things that we have to do as believers in Jesus Christ. Listen, when you pull up to a corner and there's a homeless person there, you have to in some way, shape, or form deal with the problems that present themselves in front of you. You cannot close your eyes and you can't say, well, it would be a vain thing to help here or help there. No, we have given, been given very specific commands from the Father and what we should do. And none of what he asks us to do are vain. Listen, there are some things that I do that absolutely cramp my work week, right? There are situations that present themselves that I absolutely do not want to, to deal with at all. You, you guys have those things come up at work? When I stop, when I stop with my checklist and with trying to get things done, And I do what I feel like the Lord wants me to do in that situation, even though I have zero time for that situation that just presented itself. 
I find that a week or two later, someone has heard about the way I handled a particular situation and good things in town are being said. People are watching everything that you do. And you know the town we live in, people are talking about everything that you do. And so why not slow down and deal with things and we stop saying that it's a vain thing to serve the Lord in these areas. And why don't we just do them incredibly well so that when people do have things to say, they say good things. So all of this is on the heels of what's coming. Now, chapter 3, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. And the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him whose Excuse me. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And so God listened to the people who feared the Lord and he writes their name in a book. Listen, there's a chapter over in the book of Isaiah. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this. God says this of some of the people in Israel in the book of Isaiah. He says, behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. And so there are times where God takes a special note of those people who are fearing him and walking in his commandments. And he keeps a record of these things and he doesn't forget them. He writes their name in a book. He inscribes their name on their hand. And there's a book in heaven which you want your name to be in a Lamb's book of life. And so he takes notes of things and he remembers them. And trust me, you want to be remembered for these things by God, because this is what he says in verse 17. He says, they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not. For behold, Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming, the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so you want to be written down on God's hand in his book. Whatever he grabs to take note, you want to be on that list sounds a lot like Santa Claus, doesn't it? You want to be on that list because a day is coming where everything that's arrogant and every evildoer is going to be burnt up like chaff. And so you want to be on his list. And listen to this. This is what uh, Penny read this morning. But for you who fear my name, keep in mind, this is the last chapter of the Old Testament before Christ comes. But for you who fear my name, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Then there's two things he wants you to know in closing. He says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. So listen, you're down to the last three verses before Jesus comes. And what does he take advantage of those last three verses to say? He says, remember the covenant that I made with Moses. Do the things that I told you. And then he says in the second to last verse, verse five, behold, pay attention. 
I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And so this is a good thing. He's going to send a forerunner, Elijah, and Elijah is going to prep the people so that when he comes, there are some people whose hearts have been turned back who are eagerly awaiting the Lord so that when he shows up, he doesn't have to smite the whole crowd of them. He's going to keep that remnant serving the Lord so that when he shows up, He doesn't have to destroy them all. And so these are the two things leading up to Christmas that he wants you to do. He says, remember the things that I told you. So as you think this Christmas about what sorts of things that you can do for the Lord, I want you to treat this much like you would treat a college exam. When you, this is how you were supposed to treat a college exam at least. When the teacher asks you a question, They're not looking for you to make up a bunch of mumbo-jumbo and run on and on and on about a bunch of different stuff that they didn't ask you. When a good teacher gives a good exam and they ask you a question, they want you to regurgitate back to them the things that they taught you. And listen, this Christmas, that's what God wants from you. He doesn't want you to come up with a bunch of elaborate ways to serve Him. He wants you to read this book that he gave you and he wants you to do what it says and that's what he wants from you for christmas because one day that savior of the world who came two thousand years ago he is coming back but he's not coming back as a baby this time he's coming back as a reigning and a conquering king and when he comes back he wants to find you faithful to the things that he told you He doesn't want all of your money. He doesn't want all of your time and all of these other things. He just wants you to worship and obey Him. And so leading into Christmas, God wants from you the very same thing that He wanted from Cain and Abel. Worship and obedience. And so the question ultimately is, man... Why couldn't I just go out and buy him something? Wouldn't it be much easier just to go and get him something? But he doesn't want something. He wants you. You are what he's after. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for this book of Malachi. And Father, over and over and over and over again, you call your people to repentance. And God, sometimes it is so easy to ignore the things that you're telling us. Father, I thank you for not being a God who drops hints, but I thank you for being a God who tells us exactly what he desires from us. And Father, I pray that at this Christmas season that we would never fall victim to being a people who try to do a couple nice things for you at Christmas. But God, I pray that we would genuinely repent of our sins. I pray that we would genuinely be a people who are worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And I pray that we would be reading what you say and doing what you tell us so that when you come on the scene that we can be found faithful. God, I pray that we would be a people who fear your name And God, I pray that we would be a people who have our names written down on record as those who fear you and those who will be delivered from the day of wrath to come. Father, if there's anyone here who has never put their faith 
and the Son of God to forgive them of their sins. I pray that this Christmas season would be the time that they do it. And Father, I pray that this would then in turn be the greatest Christmas that they've ever had. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand for our hymn of invitation. Great Sunday to spend with you guys. It's always a joy to see you, especially uh, at the holidays. I want to give you an announcement before we leave. I want to remind you that our community Christmas meal is coming up on the 20th. Uh, where we are feeding uh, 450 people that are coming to our food pantry to get food. And so we are preparing a ton of meals, and we are short on people that will cook turkeys and bring them cooked and sliced to the church. Uh, I think we're in need of around about 26-ish turkeys, and we have eight of them accounted for. And so we are still in need of a lot of turkeys. If you would help cook up some and and bring them to church, um, we're still going to make this happen. But we could really use your help. I'm going to ask um, some people tonight at the Christmas Cantata when some of the community comes. Maybe some of them want to help out also. This is a, a big thing to bite off, feeding that many people. But uh, it's the Christmas season. And uh, we think there's a lot of people out there who will not have a good Christmas meal uh, unless one's provided for them. And so this is our way uh, of serving the community one big meal. And so on your way out, if you could go through the fellowship hall and see what needs we still have uh, and sign up to cook a turkey or four. Uh, that would be a big help. Um, and so also, we have someone here. Here, come on up here with me. This pretty young lady wants to join fellowship with our church. Uh, this is Dale Clow, and she wants to uh, become a member of our church. She's uh, professed faith in Jesus Christ, been baptized by immersion, and is coming by a transfer of letter from another church. And uh, this letter thing has you guys spooked. And so, uh, <laughs> but we're going to, she's coming by transfer of letter from a, from another church. And so all in favor of accepting her into our fellowship, let it be known by saying aye. aye. All right. Sounds good to me. On your way out, if you would come by and welcome her to the fellowship, uh, she's going to hang here with me as long as her knees allow her to. And, um, but let's go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Um, I can't see Bob Spivey. Would you close us in prayer?